Well, thank you. It is a great delight to be with you this morning. It is always a delight to be able to come and to open the Word of the Lord uh, together with you and uh, with God's people, wherever that may be. If you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to take it out and turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. Well-known passage here in Matthew 17, the parallel occurs in Mark 9. No doubt you will be familiar with this account of Jesus healing a demon-possessed young man. Uh, we'll begin reading, I'll begin reading in verse 14 of Matthew 17 and read through uh, the end of verse 21. Or I guess that's verse 20, verse 20, yeah. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, that is Jesus, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Amen. Thus far, God's holy, inspired and errant word, may he add his blessing to it. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, how grateful we are for your word, how grateful we are to have it at our disposal, at our fingertips, to have it in our homes and in our lives. And we pray, Father, that you would make us students of your word, that we would love your word, that we would love to read it, to hide it in our hearts and our minds and to live it out in our lives. Father, uh, give us a great passion for your word that we might once again as Christians be called a people of the book. Father, bless us to that end. Grant us your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds so that we might understand. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The longer I live the Christian life, the more I realize how difficult it is. Right? The Christian life is not for the faint at heart. There are temptations that we face for the entirety of our Christian lives. And sometimes those temptations do not go away. We face the same ones, no doubt. There are some, I'm convinced, that every one of us has a certain sin or two that just fits us. Right? Maybe it's gossiping. 
Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's materialism. Maybe it's, uh, you know, ambition. I don't know what it might be. No doubt it's different for every one of us. But there's something about the way the devil works. There's something about just the fallen nature of the flesh that every one of us will have struggle. Struggle against sin that remains in us. Struggle against uh, the, the temptations of the devil. Struggle with trials and tribulations, with losses and with crosses to bear. The longer I live the Christian life, the more I realize that there are times in the Christian life when all you can do is put one foot in front of the other. No doubt, praise the Lord, there are mountaintop experiences in the Christian life. There are times when we feel close to the Lord. And coming to church and taking up the Bible and reading it and, and saying no to sin and all the rest of the things of the Christian life can be far easier at those times that we feel close to God. But there are also times when we don't feel so close to the Lord. When it's hard to even get out of bed in the morning. When it's hard, as I said, even to put one foot in front of the other. Jeff told you this morning he introduced me that I pastored First Presbyterian Church in Gulfport, Mississippi. I was there for about 12 years, and one of the members of the congregation there, a family in the congregation, had two sons, two adult sons. They were probably in their 30s or 40s at the time. This goes back a number of years ago. Uh, two adult sons, one of whom was married, and then a daughter who was also married. So they had two sons and a daughter. Two of the children were married. And within about a three-year period, they lost both of their sons and their one daughter-in-law. There are times in the Christian life when all you can do is put one foot in front of the other. I remember after that three-year period, they were sitting in my office and understandably searching for answers, looking for some basis for hope. You see, their children, none of them professed faith in Christ. None of them were part of a, a church community. None of them were going to church. As far as they, they didn't know where their children were. And having lost two sons and one daughter-in-law and, and now wrestling with why the Lord would allow this in their lives. But also, where were their children? Were they in heaven? Was there any hope in, in this difficulty? And I remember them coming to me at one point and just looking for that hope. Asking these questions and asking for some direction. And I remember having that conversation with them and directing them to this passage and some of what we talked about. You see, what they were really looking for, what they were really struggling with is the fact that the Bible is pretty clear in terms of how we get to heaven. The Bible is pretty clear that faith in Jesus Christ is what is required for us to get into heaven, right? To be accepted by the God of the universe. To have our sins covered over, right, forgiven, and to be right in the sight of the God of the universe. Faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible is pretty clear about that. The Bible is not nearly as clear about how much faith 
is required to be saving faith. The Bible tells us we need to have faith in Christ, but the Bible doesn't really tell us what, how much faith is enough, right? And that's, in a sense, what this couple was really asking as they were wrestling with losing uh, two sons and, and a daughter-in-law within a very short period of time, not knowing whether or not they were in heaven, not knowing whether or not they were genuinely, genuine believers, what they were really asking was, could they possibly have faith that was barely noticeable so that we can walk away with some kind of confidence that they might in fact be in heaven? So what I shared with that family is what I want to share with you this morning from Matthew 17. It's the closest that I can find anywhere in the scriptures where Jesus takes up this issue of how much faith is enough to be saving faith. Uh, And I think Jesus tells us three things that I want to look at a little bit closer with you this morning here. The first thing that Jesus tells us may sound quite obvious from Matthew 17 as we wrestle with the hardships in life and the trials and temptations that are part of the Christian life. As we wrestle to try to find, not only to to accept and to endure, right, in the Christian life, but as we prayed earlier, to rejoice, to, to, to find joy in the Lord in the midst of all of these things. How do we do that? And, and how much faith really is enough to be Christian faith? Uh, Jesus, the first thing I want us, to, want us to see, and it may be a quite obvious statement, is that faith does not need to be perfect in order to be saving faith. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, I hope you will say, absolutely, right? Uh, praise the Lord. Because uh, every one of us here, every one of us, will none of us have perfect faith, right? None of us will have a perfect faith here. And I think that's exactly what Jesus points out in this passage. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to verses 19 and 20. Here, Jesus is addressing the disciples who fail to cast out this demon. And they fail to cast it out, Jesus says, because of their little faith. And then he goes on and says, If you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to the mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. You see, these men that followed Jesus, that left everything to follow after him, all of whom, whom, uh, except for uh, Judas, were genuine believers. They loved the Lord Jesus Christ. They had abandoned, they had left all family and and jobs and everything else to follow after him. And yet these men, who evidently, like I said, except perhaps for Judas, these men evidently believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet were told that they had unbelief. They had a lack of faith, right? They couldn't cast out this demon because of their little faith because of their unbelief. So we know quite evidently here that faith and unbelief, that belief and unbelief can and will go together. In Mark's version of this 
very same story in Mark chapter 9. We have that well-known passage that the father of this demon-possessed boy says to Jesus. He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Right? There the Father is, is putting into words the very sentiment that we see here in the disciples. That faith and unbelief can go together and can exist in the same person at the same time. What that tells us is that faith does not need to be perfect to be a saving faith. Because the father of the demon-possessed boy believed. And yet he also readily acknowledged the unbelief that was present in his life. These disciples obviously believed, and yet they also had unbelief because they failed to be able to cast out the demon in this young man. So we know quite readily that faith, saving faith, and unbelief can go together in the same person at the same time. And I don't know about you, but I find that tremendously encouraging. I've been a Christian for about 30 years. And it surprises me sometimes how the same selfishness, the same pride, the same arrogance, the same thoughts oftentimes, the language. I still say things that I don't want to say. I still do things that I don't want to do. I still don't do things that I really do want to do. I find what Paul says in Romans 7 to be my life. A wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? 30 years after being a Christian, that's my experience. I'm not enough like Jesus. Still, praise God that faith and unbelief can exist in the same person at the same time. And not only can they exist, we know they will exist because none of us will ever have perfect faith this side of heaven. And once we get to heaven, we won't have faith because we'll have sight, right? We walk by faith now because we don't walk by sight. But we'll, praise the Lord, walk by sight in heaven because we will see Him as He is. So none of us ever will have perfect faith. Faith will always be imperfect. And there's encouragement there because Christians who love the Lord Jesus Christ genuinely do things that tell the world we don't. That tell the world we love something else far more. That we love ourselves. That we love possessions. That we love people or whatever. We love things far more than we love the Lord. So praise the Lord that faith does not have to be perfect to be saving faith. The second thing I want us to see, though, this morning is not only that faith doesn't have to be perfect, but it also doesn't have to be mature. Faith does not have to be mature faith in order to be saving faith. 
Again, in verses 19 and 20, after failing to cast out this demon, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus says, because of your little faith. If you have faith, a grain of a mustard seed, okay, the grain of a mustard seed, you can say to the mountain, move and nothing will be impossible for you. You will know just from knowing your Bibles that at this time, the mustard seed was the smallest known seed of all. Uh, it was approximately, the mustard seed is approximately about a millimeter in length, uh, pretty small. We know today that the mustard seed is not the smallest seed in existence. I think there's a variety of the orchid seed, orchid plant. That it has a seed that's like something like 20 times smaller. If I can do the math correctly there, it's around 0.05 millimeters long. Significantly smaller than a mustard seed. Jesus is not talking about, the, he's, not, he's not speaking scientifically. The fact that he uses the mustard seed and not the orchid seed doesn't in any way uh, speak negatively about his divinity or his all-knowing, his omniscience, right? Uh, Jesus knew, no doubt, even at this point, at least by way of his divine mind, because he was God, he knew that the orchid plant had the smallest seed, if in fact, excuse me, if in fact that is the smallest seed, right? Science may discover there's another seed out there that's even smaller than the orchid seed for all we know, and if there is, the Lord knew that was the smallest seed at the time. But you see, the mustard seed was the seed that these people knew about. And so when Jesus talks about the size of a mustard seed, he's talking about something that these people knew. He's not speaking about the smallest seed scientifically. He's speaking about something these individuals would have recognized right off the bat. The mustard seed was something they knew about as being incredibly small. And to say something was the size of a mustard seed was to say that it was barely noticeable. It was so small, it was barely noticeable. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's speaking metaphorically. He's using something they know to talk about something they don't know, namely faith and the size of faith. They fail to cast out the demon. And Jesus says, because of their little faith. And then he goes on and says to them, even if you have faith, the size of of a grain of mustard seed, even something that's barely noticeable. You have a faith that size. You can say to this mountain, move, and it will move. You see, in the context of what Jesus is saying here, isn't he saying that the disciples didn't even have a faith the size of a mustard seed? Because that's why they failed to cast out this demon. If they had faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, even something that was so um, insignificant, almost invisible, if they had faith even that small, they could have said to this mountain move and it would have been moved. Would have moved. So they obviously didn't even have faith that small. Their faith was even smaller. And yet it was obviously a saving faith. A faith that would not only get them into heaven, so to speak, right? But a faith that would also lead them to leave their jobs, their families, to leave everything behind to follow after Christ. So I think the story there is 
That faith does not need to be mature. It doesn't need to be a well-grown and super mature faith that is seasoned over years. It can be a very small, barely noticeable, almost invisible faith and be saving faith. Turn with me. Well, I don't guess we don't need to turn there necessarily, but I'll at least uh, point you to Genesis chapter 15. One of my favorite uh, passages, uh, and, and I love, there are, uh, I say I love the Bible, I love many things about the Bible, but one of my favorite passages is how uh, in the New Testament uh, we see Matthew, uh, Genesis uh, 15, verse 6, cited so uh, frequently. And in Genesis 15, verse 6, we read that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul makes much of that in Romans 4, he makes much of that in Galatians 3, uh, in terms of talking about how you and I find acceptance in God's sight. Justification is the theological term that Paul uses for that, to find acceptance, to be counted as right uh, in God's sight. Uh, in Genesis 15, 6, we're told that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What was the, what's the it? Most commentators will say that the it refers to Abraham's faith. Abraham believed God and it. His faith was credited to him as righteousness. Well, I do not think that's what the Bible is saying. Because if that is true, then Abraham was saved by something he did. It's a salvation by works. Because faith is something that we do. It's a response to what God does, no doubt, but it's our response. And so if, if, if you and I are saved, if, if, if Abraham believes God, his response, and that faith of his is credited to him as righteousness, then it's his action. It's his response that's being credited to him as righteousness. That's work salvation. So there's no way that that's what the Bible's saying there. Um, but I think the, the, the more helpful way of looking at it is, is by looking, remembering what Jesus says in the gospel accounts. You remember, Jesus says something very similar. Jesus says to many people, he doesn't say it necessarily here in this account, but on many occasions when Jesus heals someone, he says something like this. Your faith has made you well. Right? What does Jesus mean when he says your faith has made you well? Does he mean it's actually their faith that has healed them? No, surely he doesn't, right? What or who or what has healed them? Jesus has, right? Jesus healed them. The faith didn't heal them. What did the faith do? Well, the faith put them in a position to receive the healing that Jesus provided, right? The faith is the vehicle, it's the instrument through which they receive Jesus' healing. So when Jesus says your faith has made you well, he doesn't mean your faith has made you well, but your faith has received my healing. I'm going to make you well, right? But your faith is, is because of your faith, or, or the faith is, is the vehicle, the instrument, through which it's the hand, if you will, through which you receive the gift that I put into it, the healing, right? And I think it's the exact same thing's true in Genesis 15, 6. So when Abraham, we read about Abraham that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's not his faith that's credited, but it's his faith that's the hand that receives the crediting as righteous that God provides. God credits him as, righteous, as, as being righteous. 
Not because of his faith, not, not on account of his faith, but the faith is the vehicle through which he receives it. It's the open hand in which God puts that free gift of justification, being right, counted as right in his eyes. So when we read about that passage, Abraham believing God and, uh, and, 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 and that faith putting him in a position to receive God's gift of justification in Genesis 15, 6. What happens immediately after that? It's a glorious passage, isn't it? He's counted as righteous, not for anything he's done, but simply because of God's free gift placed into the hand of his faith, if you will. What happens immediately after that? Genesis 15, 6. You don't have to go to seminary to figure this one out, right? What comes after Genesis 15? Genesis 16, right? It's amazing how that math works, isn't it? Yeah. What happens in Genesis 16? Hagar. God comes in Genesis 15 and says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. You look up, you see the stars in the sky. You look down, you see the grains of sand on the seashore. Such will your descendants be. And then in Genesis 16, he and Sarah plot and he takes that covenant uh, promise into his own hands and says, well, I, I need to have a son. Therefore, let me bring about God's promises on my own, in my own ways, according to my own thoughts and my own devices. So he seeks to bring about God's promises on his own. Isn't that glorious? Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believes God and he's credited, he's counted as righteous. And yet what kind of faith is it through which he is counted as righteous? It's a Genesis 16 faith. It's a faith that seeks to bring God's covenant promises to pass on his own, in his own strength. Isn't it glorious that Genesis 15, 6 occurs before Genesis 16 and not after Genesis 22? Remember what happens in Genesis 22? God calls Abraham to put his son to death. The child of the promise through which God is going to bring about this promise to make his, his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore. And God tells him to take him and to put him to death. And that beautiful statement where he says, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, Isaac. Isn't that glorious? He didn't just say, take your son and put him to death. But it's like with every step, the knife plunges deeper into Abraham's own heart. Take your son. Abraham, your only son, the son whom you love, Isaac, put him to death. And Abraham does. Praise God that the Lord stays his hand. But if he hadn't, Abraham would have put Isaac to death. Praise God that it's not a Genesis 22 faith through which Abraham is counted as righteous but it's a Genesis 16 faith. 
You see, if Genesis 15, 6 occurred at around Genesis 22, maybe in Genesis 23, that would tell us that the kind of faith through which you and I are counted as righteous and accepted in God's sight is the kind of faith that takes our son and will put him to death. That's a seasoned, robust, mature faith. But praise God, it's a Genesis 16 faith. The kind of faith that sleeps with his handmaid. The kind of faith that seeks to bring God's promises to pass in his own strength, in his own ways, in his own flesh. That's the kind of faith through which Abraham is counted as righteous. And that's the idea here in this passage too. And that is an absolutely glorious truth that we need to remember. Because even as we grow over the course of the Christian life, this process of sanctification is so slow and is so incremental that we can oftentimes shake our heads and wonder that God hasn't just completely wiped us from the face of the earth. Why is God so patient with us? We sin, and we sin, and we sin, and we don't really believe, and we believe, and yet we don't believe. And there's so much unbelief that's mixed in there with our faith that we constantly are turning. What was it Calvin said about the human heart? John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. It's constantly manufacturing new idols for us to worship, right? It's constantly seeking something to worship besides the Lord. And we have to constantly be tearing down those heart idols and giving our heart back to the Lord promptly and sincerely, as Calvin said, right? We offer our hearts back to the Lord promptly and sincerely. And yet... Our heart wants to turn aside to another uh, idol. And it's manufacturing, it's a manufacturing facility for idols. And it manufactures another one right off the assembly line. And we have to tear it down again and destroy it. And there's another one that comes up. And the fact that the Lord can be so patient and so gracious with us is because faith will never be perfect. And saving faith does not need to be mature, to be saving faith. But the third thing that I would point out this morning is that faith not only can be imperfect and immature, but it also does not need to be, does not need to manifest itself in grand ways, in big ways. Sometimes I think we think that. That if I'm genuinely a Christian, my faith will manifest itself in big ways. I'll leave everything to follow Christ. I'll, uh, I'll get fired at work because I'm a Christian. Or I'll give away all my money to the church or whatever, or to RTS, better yet, right? Uh, or whatever it may be. Uh, we, we think that way sometimes. Right? We think if for, and we look at our lives and we see, well, I don't have that that grand gesture, that grand action, that big thing that I've done in my life, so therefore I must not be a Christian. Or we see a life like Mother Teresa. Or we see a life like someone like that that gives up all and is serving the poor, serving uh, those who have less. And we think, well, that's the Christian life manifesting itself. There's none of that in my life. Therefore, I must not really be a Christian. You see, and that's what Satan uses so often in our lives. I don't know about you, but for 30 years, I've had that voice in my ear 
usually it comes after you sin. After some manifestation of pride or selfishness or something, that voice comes and it says, how can you call yourself a Christian and talk like that and live like that? You're not a Christian. You're fooling yourself. Yeah, see, I think we need to be reminded that not only can faith be imperfect, and not only will it be imperfect, but it will be immature until we get to heaven. And not only so, but it will be oftentimes invisible, or maybe better yet, barely visible. But even when it's barely visible, it will always be visible. It will always be visible. Faith will always manifest itself on the outside in some way. It may not manifest itself in grand ways, in big gestures and, and giving away all to the poor or whatever it may be, but faith will always manifest itself. Look with me in your Bibles at Matthew 17. Here in this passage, I think it's exactly what we see in this epic failure of the disciples to cast out this demon from this young man, even in this failure and in their unbelief, what they did was nonetheless a manifestation of their genuine faith. The fact that they chose to attempt to cast the demon out is a sign is a manifestation of their genuine faith coming out. Look with me back to Matthew chapter 10. Let me show you that. In Matthew chapter 10, look at verse 1. Jesus gathers his 12 disciples to himself, and this is what he says. He says, excuse me, we read, He called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Okay? So Jesus gathers his 12 disciples, and he gives them authority to cast out demons, among other things. Look down at verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Do you see? Jesus gave his disciples the authority and charged them to go and cast out demons. And so here, in attempting to cast out this demon, they were seeking to live according to that command. They were seeking to to do what Jesus asked them to do. They failed. They failed incredibly because of their weak faith, because of their little faith, Jesus tells us, but their attempt is itself a sign of faith manifesting itself in their lives. There are times in the Christian life when all we can do is put one foot in front of the other. There are times, like when you lose two sons and a daughter-in-law, where maybe all you can do is cry out a one-word prayer to the Lord, help. 
That one word prayer is a manifestation of faith. It's genuine faith working itself out. Sometimes we beat ourselves up and we get so discouraged because we expect to have a, a grander expression or manifestation of faith. And yet sometimes we need to realize there are times when the tree out in the yard will produce abundant fruit. And there are times when it may simply have one or two pieces of fruit. Seasons come and seasons go. And some seasons will be more fruitful than others. And there are times in the Christian life when all you can do is put one foot in front of the other. At times like that, we need to remember that saving faith does not need to be perfect to be saving faith. It does not need to be mature to be, to be saving faith. And it doesn't need to manifest itself in big ways. But it will manifest itself in some way. And so look for those small ways in your lives and be encouraged. One of the problems, we lived in Scotland for three years, and one of the problems there was that you had, in, you had people who uh, just didn't see, they didn't see those grand expressions of faith in their life, and, and, and they grew discouraged and wanted to give up, didn't think they were genuinely converted, didn't think they were, they were Christians at all, because they, uh, they didn't see what they saw in other people. You know, we're so good, aren't we, as Christians? We clean ourselves up on Sunday mornings. We come to church and we think everything's lovely. We give off a great picture. There's no problems in my life, no problems in my family. I'm a great Christian and I do everything right all the time. And I give my money to the poor and I give my money to RTS and I give my money, <laughs> I give my money. You know, my point is we give off this impression, don't we? And that's usually not the way we really are. We're struggling. We're struggling with ourselves. We're struggling with our sins. We're struggling with temptation. We're struggling with our families. We're we live with sinners. We're a sinner. We live with sinners. Are we surprised there are problems? Right? Unbelief and belief can and will go together in the Christian life. The man I did my PhD on was a man by the name of Samuel Rutherford. He once said that faith is a palsied hand, was his word. We don't speak that way anymore. But the idea is that it, was, it, was, it had palsy. In other words, it wasn't healthy. It was diseased. That faith is not this strong and mighty hand that's attached to a strong and mighty arm that's been working out for years and so it can reach out and grab hold of Jesus and hold on for all it's worth. And it's got the strength in and of itself to hang on until we die. That's not faith. That's not Christian faith. You see, faith is a diseased hand that has no strength in itself. It can't hold on to Christ. All it can do is receive what's placed within its, grip, its grasp. That's faith. You see, the whole point that Jesus is trying to get us to see here is that it's not the quantity of our faith that matters. And it's not the quality of our faith that matters. 
so much as the object of our faith. The object of our faith. That's what matters. It's Jesus. It's not how strongly we can hold on to Christ, but praise God, it's how strongly He holds on to you. And He has promised He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. So when we can't put one foot in front of the other, when that's all we feel like we can do, we need to remember even then that Jesus is holding us fast. Because that's what he does. It's the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what matters. Far more than how much faith we have or how strong that faith is. It's a diseased hand. It's a palsied hand that simply receives the glorious gift of the Lord Jesus Christ placed within it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for this time together this morning. We thank you for your word and pray that even as we wrestle with ourselves and the sin that remains in us, and even as we wrestle with your providence and the things that happen to us in this world, Father, help us to remember that it's not about us holding you fast. It's about you holding us fast. That it's not about the strength of our faith. It's not about the quality or the quantity of our faith. It's about the object of our faith. Father, teach us that this morning and, and help us, oh Father, we pray, uh, and hold us fast even in the midst of the difficulties of life. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.